It's senior year of high school, winter break. My parents and I were doing our tradition, watch two or three films in a row at the movies. It was back in like 2017, and I don't remember the second film we watched, but I do remember diving into the world of Guillermo del Toro for the first time with The Shape of Water. The princess without voice. Or perhaps I would just warn you about the truth of these facts and the tale of love and loss and the monster who tried to destroy it all. have so many memories attached to this film. First of all, I remember going back to school feeling super excited to talk about this movie. It's lunchtime, we're sitting at the table, and I bring it up. Some of my friends express their love for it, but some of them also ask, isn't that that weird movie with the fish man? They're not necessarily wrong. I think this just speaks to how vivid Del Toro's imagination can get, and we'll talk about that in this episode. But once it hit 2018, my friends and I planned an Oscars viewing party. It was pretty intense because some people loved The Shape of Water, but some people just thought it was super weird. Nevertheless, it was a great season for The Shape of Water, taking home awards for Best Original Score, Best Production Design, and Best Director. And it was finally time to announce the Best Picture Award. Can you tell I was excited? That was a short video I took at the party. I honestly kind of cringe listening to that clip. I think just listening to the audio is fine and sufficient, but in case you were wondering, the camera shaking and a bunch of people are also cheering in the back. But now that I'm looking back on it, some of my friends do not look happy. I think they probably voted for Lady Bird or something, I don't know. <laughs> Looking back on it, I asked myself what made me and my friends who also loved the film so invested in the success of this film? What made us want to scream when it won Best Picture as if we had been part of the production? How did the film move us? Welcome to Made Me Cry, the show where I not only talk about films and TV shows that made me and many other people shed tears of sadness, laughter, inspiration, happiness, etc, etc, but also investigate how the film moved us to tears. We didn't cry for no reason. The film did something to us. Let's find out what. And of course, spoilers are ahead. The Shape of Water is a fairy tale set in 1962 during the Cold War. Eliza, played by Sally Hawkins, is a mute woman who works at a government lab facility as a cleaning lady in Baltimore. She's close with her neighbor Giles, played by Richard Jenkins, and Zelda, who is also a cleaning lady at the lab, played by Octavia Spencer. Eliza discovers that a new creature has been brought in. It's half man, half amphibian who is kept in a mysterious water tank. The government workers call him it an asset. America would be able to get ahead of Russia with this sort of research. Other major characters include Strickland, played by Michael Shannon, who is in charge of this project, and Dmitri, a scientist but also secretly a Russian spy, who goes by Dr. Hofstetler, played by Michael Stoberg. Eliza almost immediately feels a connection with the creature, and the story takes off from there. Before we get to really talking about the film in depth, I think it's important to talk a little bit about the 2018 Oscars. So before the 2018 Oscars happened, the hashtag OscarsSoWhite was trending, again because people were talking about the lack of nominations for non-white people, non-white filmmakers, actors, but... In 2018, we saw the first black screenwriter, Jordan Peele, win Best Original Screenplay for Get Out, and Greta Gerwig became the fifth female director to be nominated for Best Director. I think there was also a wholesome moment when Frances McDormand asked every woman to stand. She said, look around, ladies and gentlemen, because we all have stories to tell and projects we need financed. But despite these really great wins and nominations and an acknowledgement of gender disparities in the industry, it doesn't mean that Oscars So White is over. We clearly still have a lot of work to do. 
So let's unpack the Shape of Water winning Best Picture. I know you heard that video of me screaming in support for this win, but I think my opinions have since shifted a little bit. I read this really great article from Aisha Harris, and she talks about how the Shape of Water winning Best Picture was a disappointingly safe choice for the Academy. The film deals with embracing the other. The main characters include a mute woman, a black woman, and a gay man. So there are obviously these themes of oppression and othering that are relevant today. But what Aisha Harris's article talks about is even though Del Toro's film does feature these characters, he has all of these really nostalgic, romanticized references to old Hollywood films and older music. And... There's even the scene where Giles tells Eliza to turn off the TV when there's something about the civil rights movement that pops up, and he tells her to switch to something else like an old Hollywood movie. And so it seems as though there are moments where the audience is distanced from these issues that were prominent in the 60s and also relevant today. So there's this concern of Del Toro's film not really addressing sufficiently the racism, the sexism, the oppression that was happening in the 60s, but also still happening today. So it seems as though the Academy was attempting to show its support for diversifying the Oscars, or at least trying to choose a film in response to Oscars so white and people's acknowledging that there are racial disparities, gender disparities in the film industry. But I have to agree with Aisha Harris here that the Shape of Water was a disappointingly safe choice. The film, although it does deal with themes about embracing the other, connecting with the other, it literally dances around sufficiently addressing these issues. And when I say dancing around, I mean all of the clips that Del Toro includes from old Hollywood movies are dance sequences. So when Giles tells Eliza to turn off whatever news is happening about the civil rights movement and to put on a dance sequence from an old Hollywood movie instead, you can see how that's actually dancing around talking about these issues that are prevalent in the 60s and prevalent today. So I think the Academy oftentimes shies away from choosing films like Get Out, which is a much more challenging and explicit account of racism. So Aisha Harris's article talks about how the Academy oftentimes does not choose films like Get Out, and it chooses films like The Shape of Water, which is ultimately a very uplifting story with a happy ending, and it's based in this fantastical world, so it's easier for us to not be confronted by our reality, even though Del Toro does say that this film is supposed to be a direct reference to the world we live in today. That's not to say that Del Toro's film should have been this more explicit story about racism and oppression. I think he does address it in some moments in his film. There's a scene where the waiter is very homophobic towards Giles and is also very racist towards a black couple. Strickland is also very racist towards Zelda. So we can kind of see the power dynamics that exist in the 60s and that could potentially lead us to confront the reality that we're living in today. So it's difficult to evaluate whether or not Del Toro's film should have had more references to the sociopolitical landscape of the 60s, but I think concerning the Academy's choice, I agree with Aisha Harris that it was a disappointingly safe one. She says that the Academy has this tendency to shy away from narratives about racism that come from a Black perspective and that are way more challenging and not Hollywood-esque and do not necessarily end in this Hollywood happy ending. I think contextualizing the awards is really important and just important to mention. It doesn't mean that I don't like this film. I still really like this film. And so let's keep talking about it and let's learn a little bit more about who Del Toro is. The Shape of Water is ultimately a film about connecting with the other. Del Toro talked about how this film is about empathy. The original title was A Fairy Tale for Troubled Times. He's recognizing how the story applies to today. When Del Toro won Best Director for The Shape of Water, he spoke about his experience with being othered, starting his speech with, 
I am an I am an immigrant, like Alfonso and Alejandro, my compadres, like Gael, like Salma, and like many, many of you. And in the last 25 years, I've been living in a country all of our own. Part of it is here, part of it is in Europe, part of it is everywhere. Because I think that the greatest thing our art does and our industry does is to erase the lines in the sand. We should continue doing that when the world tells us to make them deeper. The Shape of Water is a deeply personal film for Del Toro. He has talked about how he has had this idea or at least a desire to create a story with a fishman creature since he was six years old, ever since he watched the horror sci-fi film Creature from the Black Lagoon. And the monsters look very much alike, but of course the story is very different. Del Toro is such a creative mind and we'll be talking about that next. Guillermo del Toro is a Mexican filmmaker. He is really imaginative when it comes to creatures and monsters. Monsters are kind of his thing. And I think this stems from his background in special effects makeup. He spent a lot of the 80s working as a special effects artist before making his first feature film, Kronos, which is a gothic tale about an antique dealer who becomes immortal after a beetle attaches itself to him. Del Toro worked on other films like Hellboy, based on the comics by the same name, Del Toro's Pan's Labyrinth uses the historical backdrop of the Spanish Civil War and incorporates fantasy, so it's kind of similar to The Shape of Water in that there's this historical background and then a fantastical element. Pan's Labyrinth premiered at the Cannes Film Festival and got him a lot of recognition at the Toronto Film Festival as well. The film won Best Production Design, Best Cinematography, and Best Makeup and Hairstyling at the 2007 Academy Awards. You might have seen the wrinkly, really scary monster who sticks his eyeballs into his hands and then opens his palms up to reveal his eyes. Super creepy, but really amazing special effects makeup. But under all this costume is Doug Jones, who also plays the amphibian man in The Shape of Water. So a lot of people cried during The Shape of Water. Here are some comments responding to a scene where Eliza is trying to explain her bond with the amphibian man to Giles. One person wrote, I actually cried during this part. The frustration and desperation was very profound. Another person quoting Eliza when she said, he's happy to see me every time, every day. That line makes me cry like a baby. And there are three crying emojis. Someone else also used three crying emojis and wrote, God, I'm literally crying. Even someone who has not seen the film said, I haven't watched the movie yet, but the scene made me cry. Cries in all caps. So yes, a lot of us cried, but why? I think the film is super immersive and it aims to be immersive through the sound, particularly the sound, and through its filmmaking as well. And we'll talk about that later. But I think this sort of immersive nature of this film is what made us feel more connected to the characters and made us more invested in their journey and made us root for them more. So this ability to feel empathy was kind of amplified by the immersive experience that the film provided for the audience. Let's start with the opening scene. The film starts with Alexandre Desplat's enchanting melody. He's described it as arpeggios that flow like waves. We're not hearing a full orchestra. We're hearing a flute, some whistling, an accordion here and there. It's a little bit mysterious. And Desplat did this intentionally because he wanted to have room for more climactic moments later on in the film. And we'll listen to some of those moments. But we start at the bottom of the lake. There's this beautiful teal green filter as we're slowly let into this opening. It's one shot as we float through the hallway and into Eliza's apartment. I love the way that the film starts. Desplat has spoken about how he wanted to compose a score that is immersive and places the audience underwater. The score has almost a blurry effect to it, especially during this scene because 
we're just introduced to this environment. Again, it's not a thunder of string instruments, but rather a set of delicate yet curious notes. So we're kind of wondering, what is this world that we're in right now? And for this gorgeous opening scene, they used dry for wet, which is a technique where you film a dry set, but you use smoke, lighting, and fans to move clothes to make it look like everything and everyone is floating underwater. So Eliza is floating near the ceiling, which means that Sally Hawkins is essentially held up by strings at this moment. And her dress that's kind of waving in the water is thanks to a fan. And then after this, they add the bubbles and the fish in post. There's a seamless transition from the riverbed, which is a digital space, to a real set. Dan Lautzen, the cinematographer, has mentioned how the scene was the hardest to film, and I think it totally paid off. I also think the scene establishes two things. One, this film is a fairy tale. That's made obvious later on by Giles' narration that you listened to at the beginning of the episode, but we are literally stepping in, or maybe I should say swimming into a new world. We're given this long one-shot to get our bearings a bit. And this green filter, it's interesting because you would expect a blue filter, but the green makes it look really mossy as if algae has been growing for a while at the entrance of this building. It's as if algae has been growing at the entrance of this story. It's saying once upon a time without explicitly saying once upon a time. The second thing that the scene encourages us to do is let go of everything we know about a fairy tale. Giles mentions a fair prince, a princess, and a monster, and we may have images of what these typical figures in a fairy tale look like, but this is the world of Guillermo del Toro. Look, don't touch. That lovely dingus right there is an Alabama howdy-do. Molded grip handle, low-current, high-voltage, electric shock cattle prod. Named Strickland Security. Fleming Security. Huh. Oh, no, no. A man washes his hands before or after tending to his needs. It tells you a lot about a man. He does it both times, points to a weakness in character. The setting of the film is 1962 during the Cold War. During this time, there's anxiety and fear surrounding nuclear world war, especially during the Cuban Missile Crisis. Despite it being the 60s, the ideologies of the 50s still persist. The all-American family with a suburban lifestyle, picture a nuclear family. Strickland embodies these values. He's Christian, has two kids, a loving wife, a relatively secure job. He lives in the suburbs. Doesn't sound like much of a monster. In a 1950s or a 1960s movie, he would be a really good candidate for the role of the hero. But Del Toro flips everything that we know about fairy tales and goes against our assumptions and makes Strickland the monster of this story. And Strickland is truly awful. He sexually harasses Eliza. He's racist towards Zelda. He abuses the amphibian man. He just tries to enforce his dominance in any situation. Del Toro also takes inspiration from the Beauty and the Beast narrative, but he also flips this on its head, as we'll see later on. Strickland is the epitome of what's wrong with the 50s and the 60s. The 50s saw a boom in the economy after World War II. People were moving to the suburbs. There were TVs in their homes. The nuclearization of the family was happening. So there was this optimism about the future. But if we look more closely, there's conflict. The Cold War started the civil rights movement. Del Toro said, It's not a movie about 62. It's a movie that tells you that the racism, classism, sexual mores, everything that was alive in 62 is all alive now. It never went away. At first, I was having trouble seeing this. I was having trouble seeing how this film, which gives such an immersive experience to the viewers, how this film also 
encouraged viewers to think about the issues that we face today. I realized that it was through its treatment of the future. So whenever the future is mentioned in this film, it's oftentimes paired with the color green or teal. When Strickland gets a new car, it's a new shiny teal car. It's the car of the future. Giles eats green key lime pie at the restaurant where he thinks the waiter and him have this sort of flirty relationship. Giles also paints a plate of green gelatin, and later on, Strickland's wife tries to give him some green gelatin. Green seems to be this motif for the future. But if we examine the things that are happening around these green things, they're not progressive. Strickland drives a teal car, but he's racist. Giles eats green pie at the restaurant, but the waiter is homophobic towards Giles. And Strickland is ultimately not really happy in his marriage. I mean, it's not explicitly said, but it's very clear that he doesn't really feel a connection to his wife. He doesn't really feel a connection to his children. So the film seems to be doing this really interesting thing where they're placing the audience in the future. So these people in 62, they have these green things and they're saying green is the color of the future. They're really optimistic about the future. But we know as people in the future that again, racism, classism, sexual mores, everything that was alive in 62 is still alive now. So the film doesn't take us out of the immersive experience to remind us of the issues that are prevalent today. So this goes back to the question of does Del Toro have to have a more explicit treatment of oppression that was happening in the 60s. I think I'm going to say no, because these characters do face oppressive situations. Strickland is extremely racist towards Zelda, and he sexually harasses Eliza. The waiter is extremely homophobic towards Giles and racist towards a black couple, but we have already established a link between Strickland and the teal car and the waiter and the key lime pie. So these green objects, which are supposedly the objects of the future and supposedly represent the future, we have these oppressive situations happening around these objects. So we're reminded that, yes, again, I'm going to say it again, racism, classism, sexual mores, everything that was alive in 62 is still alive now. I think it's Del Toro's way of making sure that we're not disconnected from this immersive experience and making sure that we're not confronted with the issues of today by disconnecting us from the story. He finds a way to keep us connected to the story, but still addresses the issues that are problematic today. I do think, however, it was a little strange that Giles told Eliza to turn off whatever was happening on the TV about the civil rights movement and turn on an old Hollywood movie instead. I thought that part was a little jarring because it directly erases or neglects what's happening in the 60s. But then again, I think this could show a commitment to the character. Giles is probably not a social justice activist and he probably doesn't want to hear about it. So it makes sense that he would turn on an old Hollywood movie instead. And maybe Del Toro isn't necessarily endorsing this at all. He's just staying true to what the character might actually do. So I think this is an ethical question. If we want to set up our story in a historically accurate environment, how do we blend history and a narrative style? What are the ethical problems that arise from that? I keep seeing a lot of articles about how Del Toro keeps referencing old Hollywood movies, but doesn't address or sufficiently address the issues of social justice. And I think I, I agree. I agree that there seems to be an issue here, but I wish we kind of took a step back and defined, well, what is an ethical treatment of a historical period if that historical period is just the backdrop for our story? How do we ethically address the events that are happening, and are we required to? These are some really interesting questions that I didn't expect that this film would bring up. 
So it seems as though Del Toro is engaging with these issues of oppression through his characters. And there's the fact that we feel empathy for many of the main characters who are marginalized not only during the early 60s, but also today. Eliza is a disabled woman, Zelda is a black woman, Giles is an older gay man. But what I like about this film is that they're not essentialized to these identities. Yes, they do face obstacles at some points in the film that stem from oppressive attitudes surrounding disability, race, and homosexuality, but they as characters are more than that. I know this film got some criticisms about character development, but I think I have to disagree. In terms of disability representation, I can't be the judge of that, but I will be talking about what some disability scholars and writers have to say. But in terms of making characters multidimensional, I think this film succeeds in portraying them as individuals with desires and fears and frustrations who want to be seen and heard. Oh, he's alone. Oh. Now, does this mean that whenever we go to a Chinese restaurant, you want to save every fish in the tank? So what if he's alone? We're all alone. The loneliest thing you've ever seen. Well, you just said it, right? You just said it. You called it a thing. It's a thing. It's a freak. I can understand you. Calm down. God, calm down. All right, I, I will repeat it to you. What am I? I move my mouth like him. I make no sound like him. What does that make me? All that I am, all that I've ever been, brought me here to him. See, you're saying him, it's a him now. It's a... You just hit me. Eliza, let go of me. I'm looking, I'm looking. You've never hit me. So this is the scene that I was talking about earlier. When Eliza tells Giles that she wants to save the amphibian man, Giles says, absolutely not. And not only because it's illegal, but he feels as though they can't do anything, given the way in which they're treated in society. I'm leaving. I have to, no, I have to leave. Just, Liza, please stop. Listen to me. Just listen to me. I have to go. I have to. I'm leaving now because this, Liza, this is very important to me. This is a second chance for me. I'm sorry, but I have to go. And, oh, God. When I come back, we just will not talk about this ever again. Liza, there's, oh, all right. What are we? What, what are you and I? Do you know what we are? We are nothing. Nothing. We can do nothing. I'm sorry, but this, this, this is just, oh God, it's not even human. There's a medium close-up basically throughout most of the scene. This is a really intimately tense conversation where Eliza doesn't feel heard, even with her best friend. Throughout this film, Eliza communicates with her hands, but the shot expands to a long shot as she bangs her hands on the wall to get Giles' attention. What? This is a really big moment because it's as if she's really putting her whole body into saying, if we don't do anything, we're not humans either. This is a really powerful scene because there are moments where Eliza says, no, that's not what I said. Repeat back what I'm actually saying. And this makes Giles really listen to her. This is really interesting because he's the one who is narrating her story. His voice starts the film, and his voice ends the film as well. So it seems as though he's become this voice for her because she she's not here to tell her story anymore because she's with the amphibian man in the water, and he is kind of continuing her legacy, her story. So it's really important for him to go through this moment of realizing I am not listening to Eliza. I am not listening to my best friend. She is not feeling seen and heard, and I am contributing to that. And it's important for him to go through this and for us to see him go through this because now we know that he is somewhat of a reliable narrator. He, he is someone 
who would try to do Eliza's story justice. Giles eventually comes back and agrees to help. I have no one. And you are the only person that I can talk to. Now, whatever this thing is, you need it. So, you just tell me what to do. So I think witnessing Giles coming to empathize with the amphibian man because he cares so much about Eliza, that was really touching to me. And I think relationships are really important in this film and people helping each other and coming together to ultimately save the amphibian man. So speaking of empathy, we're going to be talking about this half psychoanalytic, half psychological approach to this film. It comes from a really interesting journal article, and it's about the film's connection to depth psychology. Depth psychology deals with trying to uncover the unconscious and the conscious, so it's a blend of psychoanalysis and psychology. And I want to talk about this article because I think it takes a really interesting approach to looking at the film, and I think it can show the power of this film and the power of film in general. So this article was published in an eco-psychology journal, and it's trying to explain how the film actually has the ability to uncover our unconscious and conscious beliefs about nature. And it has the power to start this psychological transformation, aka change the way we think about nature and our relationship to it. So the article cites a lot of Richard Tarnas's work, who is a historian and a professor of psychology and philosophy. So he said, to undergo a psychological transformation in the way we think about nature, we should think of ourselves as the universe with a soul. So imagine yourself as an ensouled universe. Imagine there are two kinds of people that come up to you. The first person is condescending and immediately thinks of you as inferior. He believes that the universe is there for his, quote, exploitation, self-enhancement, motivation, unquote. But the second person is different. They come to you with curiosity and they believe in your ensouled nature and intelligence. As the article says, quote, this person's approach is based on empathy, aesthetic delight, intellectual curiosity, and trust it becomes an act of love, unquote. So when we do this, we understand better and develop empathy for the other. And we understand how we can know the intelligence and the ensouled nature of the natural world. So to Tarnas, the first suitor is Western science. He says humans have this desire to dominate nature, which they consider to be inanimate and unintelligent. This sort of view has caused us to become disconnected with nature and has, quote, fueled the drive for power, profits, materialism, and technology above everything else, unquote. Tarnas also explains how the Judaic and Christian traditions that separate God from nature believes in this idea that man is made in the image of God and further separates from nature and makes humans somehow superior to nature. Does this sound familiar? This sounds a lot like Strickland. I feel as though Strickland really embodies this idea of taking a quote-unquote rational approach and thinking that he is superior to everyone else. Hell's a lot bigger than I thought. Ugly as sin. You know, the natives in the Amazon worship it like a god. Doesn't look like much of a god now, does it? Well, they're primitive, sir. You know, they would toss offerings into the water, flowers, fruits, crap like that. Then they tried to stop the oil drill with bows and arrows. That didn't turn out too well. <laughs> He's bleeding. 
he continues to abuse the amphibian man. He scoffs at the idea that the amphibian man is possibly a god. And there's this moment of vulnerability at the end when he realizes that this amphibian man is actually a god. And we'll get to that later. But he does look at the amphibian man and also these people, Eliza, Zelda, Giles, these people as inferior to him. He wants to enforce dominance wherever he goes. He does suit this first person that comes up to the universe. So the claim here is that if we expand this desire to stick to empiricism and include intuition and imagination in our thinking, we can become much more empathetic to nature. And we have continued to consider nature as this inferior other. I wanted to mention this article because I think it shows Strickland's exploitative, quote-unquote, rational approach to the amphibian man. But then we also have Eliza, Giles, and Zelda who sees the amphibian man and they truly are the second type of person that comes up to the universe. But there's this really interesting character, Dimitri, or Dr. Hofstetler, who is a scientist and a Russian spy. After Strickland gets the approval to vivisect the amphibian man, Dr. Hofstetler is really adamant about not killing the amphibian man, and he wants to continue on with his research. This creature is intelligent, capable of language, of understanding emotions. So are the Soviets, gooks. And we still kill them, don't we? The bottom line is... He had secretly caught Eliza interacting with the amphibian man a few times, and he realizes that the amphibian man is intelligent and capable of emotions. He develops this empathy for Eliza and the amphibian man. He tries going to his Russian superiors to delay the vivisection, but all they tell him to do is kill the amphibian man so the Americans can't get to study it. Dimitri ends up helping Eliza, Giles, and Zelda, and he uses the poison he received to kill the amphibian man to kill one of the guards. He's committed to science, but he opens himself up to empathy in acknowledging the soul of the amphibian man. So I think Dimitri actually really embodies the expansion that Tarnas is talking about. He opens himself up to imagination. And I think it's interesting here that a commitment to science is not necessarily being completely mechanistic and rational. The amphibian man does have a soul and is intelligent. And Dimitri does have the scientific integrity to acknowledge that, unlike Strickland. Whether or not this depth psychology is legitimate, it's still interesting to think about the power that film has to evoke empathy and to initiate this sort of mental process that helps us empathize with real things in our real world. Speaking of this appreciation of film, I mentioned that Eliza and Giles' friendship moved me. They're both lonely people who keep each other company, and they connect over old Hollywood movies. I think this film, The Shape of Water, is a love letter to film itself. There are so many references to old Hollywood films, and the first time we're introduced to Eliza and Giles together, they're watching Bojangles teach Shirley Temple the stair dance. Watch this. It's Bojangles. Stair dance. Oh, that's so hard. Cagney did it. Different, but beautiful. <laughs> Eliza also lives above a movie theater. So this is a film that knows the power of cinema, and the characters themselves are engaging with movies and movie music. There's a scene where Eliza dances in the hallway, and this speaks to her romantic, dreamy personality and her love for the fairy tale of old movies. So not only are we feeling connected to the characters through this film, through the immersive experience of this film, the characters in the film itself are also making connections with film. So 
Eliza brings over records and plays I Know Why and So Do You by Glenn Miller, and the music transitions from diegetic to non-diegetic, and it plays over this montage of Eliza interacting with the amphibian man, showing him different pieces of music, including some from Betty Goodman. There's a really interesting cross-dissolve transition when she's looking at the water in her bathtub, and then it transitions to the water boiling the eggs that she brings for him, and then it directly just cuts to her giving him the eggs. And this transition refers to her sexuality. She has this routine every morning. She wakes up, she masturbates in the morning to an egg timer. And then we have this transition from her bathtub water to the boiling of the eggs. So clearly there's a sexual connection there. And so she's courting him with eggs. And then she dances and they're looking at each other. And it's a musical moment. It's as if they're really in a musical. Del Toro has mentioned that he wanted to originally film this in black and white. So I'm wondering if that's why he brings in so many old Hollywood movies. He wanted to reproduce an old Hollywood movie originally. Uh, but then that meant that he would get less funding, so he ended up just doing color, but I think it turned out beautiful. So in that scene where she's dancing with the amphibian man, well, the amphibian man is in, in his tank, but she's dancing for him. Dr. Hofstetler catches her. She doesn't notice, but he's half in the shadows. He's sort of in the darkness, but also sort of in the light. And this shows that his role is ambiguous. He ends up helping her. He ends up helping her escape with the amphibian man, but also he rats them out to Strickland later on in the film. There is this other sequence that has this really interesting blend between non-diegetic and diegetic music. So Carmen Miranda's Chica Chica Boom Chick is playing as non-diegetic music when Strickland buys his teal car. He's the man of the future. And then there's this montage of Eliza sort of figuring out her exit routes in preparation to sneak the amphibian man out. And then Giles is also preparing a fake laundromat car to sneak himself in. And then it cuts to Giles' TV and Carmen Miranda is actually on there singing Chica Chica Boom Chick. And then it becomes background diegetic music as Eliza and Giles discuss their plans once again. I thought that this was a really good way to keep the audience immersed. It's this really interesting blend of we know what the characters are experiencing as we're listening to this music. So in the first example of how the song by Glenn Miller transitioned from diegetic music to non-diegetic, we are experiencing the character's experience of that music when it becomes non-diegetic. But in this case, we are experiencing the music first and then the characters experience it. So there's this really deep connection between us as the audience and the characters in the film. And I think the film tries to mirror the character's experience, which makes it easier for us to empathize with them and feel invested in what they want. I love how these songs are a part of the soundtrack. It really places you in Eliza's mind as she's actively pursuing what she wants. So as she's figuring out her plan and everything, it's the music that she loves that plays. The beauty and romance that she finds in old Hollywood films is being manifested in her own life. And because this music is actually used, we become connected to her and invested in what she wants. So all of these old Hollywood references culminate to this dance scene. And this is sort of a bizarre dance scene. It's that moment where all of the lights around you are off and you only see the person that you love. That sort of vibe. So she's dancing with this amphibian man in a dream sequence. It's black and white and it's almost a direct replica of one of the dance sequences from Follow the Fleet with Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers. 
and Day Plus jazzy arrangement of You'll Never Know plays. And the scene is definitely kind of bizarre because she's dancing in this very beautiful gown with a fishman. But I think this is Del Toro's way of sneaking in that black and white look that he wanted originally. But I think this gives us insight to her mind. She loves old Hollywood movies and finally that love and romance that she felt, that beauty is coming into fruition in her own life and she can finally dance with the person that she loves or with the fish man that she loves. There are some issues that disability scholars take with this film, especially because she starts singing. We're going to be talking about that real soon, so stay tuned. We're back and we're talking about that black and white scene that looks exactly like a Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers dance sequence. But disability scholars have noted that this scene is a little bit problematic because Eliza actually starts singing. I'll read what they wrote in an article published in Disability and Society. They wrote, quote, She enters into this black and white daydream when she is experiencing extreme pain from the throes of a seemingly impossible love and the lack of capacity to express it. I imagine most of us have been there. The sequence has been highlighted as one of the more problematic aspects of the film, though, unquote. So the problem here is that Eliza seems really free in the scene. She seems really content. She's dancing with the amphibian man. She's dancing with the love of her life. And the scene only seems to come after she's able to sing, after she's able to speak again. Del Toro has expressed that it's supposed to convey that the creature sees beyond Eliza's physical abilities. But some disability writers have expressed that this sentiment makes some people with disabilities feel less human. So there are criticisms here about the way that disability is represented. There have been criticisms about the dance sequence and also the scene where Eliza expresses that she is incomplete. But some disability scholars have clarified. They write, quote, Whilst this reference to her less than wholeness has been interpreted by some as a problematic statement in a world where portrayals of disabled women as the object of non-disabled people's desire are scant, the issue is not so clear-cut. Eliza refuses Strickland's advances, for example, and the fantasy genre of the film adds further complexity. Disabled writer Kim Sauter suggests we don't want to see films which romanticize our otherness, but ignoring the social and cultural causes of othering would present alternative difficulties. Eliza's statement about incompleteness can also be seen as an angry criticism of disabilism as a desire for recognition. Rather than demeaning them both, her choice of love for being defined entirely by his difference adds to the beauty of the story and sends a strong message about the validity of disabled people's relationships. Unquote. The film definitely stays committed to not conforming to the beauty and the beast narrative. At the end, the amphibian man doesn't turn into a human, but rather uses his unique power that he has only because he is an amphibian man to save Eliza. And there's this moment where Strickland says, Fuck. You are a god. The ending scene is beautiful and it mirrors the first scene 
were underwater and Eliza and the amphibian man are reunited. Eliza's scars on her neck turn into gills and we have Giles's beautiful narration again. If I told you about her, what would I say? That they lived happily ever after? I believe they did. That they were in love? That they remained in love? I'm sure that's true. But when I think of her, of Eliza, the only thing that comes to mind is a poem whispered by someone in love hundreds of years ago, unable to perceive the shape of you. I find you all around me. Your presence fills my eyes with your love. It humbles my heart, for you are everywhere. So this film really opens up the fairy tale book and closes it at the end with Giles's narration. And I think it was such an immersive experience to watch this film. And I think that's why we were so connected to the characters. And that's why we were moved and emotional. I think the immersive experience that this film attempts to provide the audience really ties in well with the title of the film, The Shape of Water. The water has no shape because it's all around us the whole time. And that is what characterizes the immersive experience that I and many other people felt while watching this film. The camera constantly is moving to mirror the movement of a water and we enter the story immediately underwater. So we're kept in this environment of water until the end of the movie and it's super immersive. And I think that's why me and many other people felt invested in these characters and felt emotional when they were emotional. And of course, this film is not without its issues. There are really interesting ethical questions that come up about using a specific historical period as the backdrop of your story and also these questions about disability representation. So a lot of food for thought here. This is one of those films where you make new discoveries every time you watch it. And the reason why we were so moved really lies in the filmmaking of this film. Thank you for listening to the Made Me Cry podcast. I hope you enjoyed this investigation into how this film moves us to tears. Stay tuned for my next episodes. I'm Emily Ko. Thanks. <laughs>